Hi there, I'm Rory O'Connor, Professor of Health Psychology and a Mental Health Researcher at the University of Glasgow. And I'm Craig, a filmmaker and content creator at MQ Mental Health Research. And welcome to MQ Open Mind, a podcast that brings together lived experience with scientific research to help us to better understand mental health problems. And we hope to do so in a way that is accessible to all. In this episode, we speak to Associate Professor of Psychiatry at University of Rochester, Tony Pisani, Head of Development at MQ, Emily Reeler, and Founder of Into the Light and Suicide Researcher, Benny Pereira, to discuss MQ's latest paper, Gone Too Soon. The Gone Too Soon paper is a roadmap written by 40 global experts, mixing mental health researchers, clinicians, policy experts and people with lived and living experience of mental illnesses and suicide. Together these 40 global experts have outlined 18 evidence-based recommendations for policymakers, business leaders and health workers the world over. In this conversation we discuss why the paper was created, what the desired outcomes are and why these recommendations are so important. Welcome to the latest episode of MQ's Open Mind. And today we've got a slightly different episode. Craig and I are delighted to welcome a collection of guests today. Sometimes we only have one guest or two, but today we've got three guests. And the three guests are to mark Gone Too Soon, the position paper, the review paper and road mapping exercise that we've been involved with, which was published recently in Lancet Psychiatry. So I'm going to welcome our, our three guests, our Tony Pisani, and Tony is Associate Professor at University of Rochester, and Tony is involved with the Centre for the Study and Prevention of Suicide, but he's also the founder of SafeSide Prevention, and I know SafeSide, I'm familiar with SafeSide's work internationally now, Tony, obviously, because it goes across, it's not just in the United States. And then next yeah. on my screen, we've got um, Emily Wheeler, and Emily is our MQ representative, and Emily is Head of Development at MQ Mental Health. On the bottom of my screen then is Benny Prawira, and Benny is the founder of Into the Light in Indonesia, and he's also a researcher with lived experience, and, and we at MQ have worked a lot with, with Benny over the, over the recent years, and it's a delight to welcome all of you to today's podcast. Yeah, it's good to be here. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Great to be here. <laughs> okay, so what we tend to begin the podcast with is, is pretty relaxed. As those of you listen to the podcast, it's really a conversation. But before we get into the nitty gritty of where how the Gone Too Soon paper came about, it'd be great maybe if we maybe take a few minutes just talking about each of our own experiences. So Craig and I have talked about our own experiences of being involved in the mental health field and what really spurred our interest in that. But maybe if I start with Benny in this one. So Benny, could you tell us a bit about your experience um, and what has brought you into the field? Yeah, uh, initially I was interested in studying psychology because I wanted to do scientific studies on the meaning of happiness. However, along the way, I had a significant shift of interest in 2012. It started when I found out there was little information on suicide prevention in Indonesia. When I wanted to help a friend who had suicidal ideation, so I was really, really concerned about the situation. And at the same time, there were so many stigmatizing and triggering news about suicide. So I was wondering what to do to improve the situation, how to raise the awareness of mental health and suicide prevention. And then I found that the, my community, the Intertelect Indonesia, as the first CO-based suicide prevention community in Indonesia in 2013. 
After careful evaluation and reflection, I also started to explore the topic with a more multidisciplinary perspective years later. Mm, great. And and obviously, Into the Light's obviously gone to from strength to strength. It's now it's 10 years since you did that work initially. Yeah, it has been a decade, uh, even though we are severely underfunded, if I may say, in a little bit of context, I'm really proud that we can manage to su- survive and strive. Yeah, no, fantastic. Thanks, Benny. So, Emily, move to you next then. So, Emily, tell us a bit about your story and how you then got to the sort of MQ sort of role in your life. Sure. So I've been at MQ now for six years, celebrating my sixth year anniversary next month, which is uh, terrifying in some respects, um, but also means amazing because I've been with MQ for that long when we're celebrating our 10th anniversary this year. So I've been around for a while here. But I mean, I came across MQ really because of my own lived experience with mental illness as well. So as a young teenager experiencing anxiety, not knowing that that's what it was at the time. And for me, unfortunately, trying to cope through the use of self-harm. And so it always been this part of my kind of growing up and something I was interested in. And it wasn't until my kind of mid-20s thinking that, well, that's something I could do about this maybe and saw this job pop up at MQ. And for me, it was this wonderful marrying of using my skills and that relationship building side of things of what I do, but being able to work for an organization that was really trying to make a difference and change that for other people who might experience something like that. So yeah, MQ, I look after all our different partnerships across the organization and just love the fact I get to be involved in things like this and and feed that kind of curiosity side of my brain as well. Yeah, and actually for those of you who haven't seen it, if you hop over to... Instagram, there's a really cool reel that Emily did last week, was last week for Mental Health Awareness Week and um, talking about your experience. It's really powerful, Emily, as I obviously we, I emailed you about it and um, really, really powerful stuff. So thanks for doing that because I think it will have helped lots of lots of people out there. So thank you. And then Tony, last but not least to Tony, who I've known for some time as well. So Tony, tell us about your story. Uh, sure, and, and it's great to meet you, Emily and and, and Benny, and uh, check out that Instagram. I, I've seen uh, Benny's Instagram already, and really appreciate that as well. I guess there's probably like two defining experiences that have had me, you know, devoting my career um, in this direction. I first got interested in mental health uh, when I was at university. Unlike you, Benny, I wasn't at all interested in psychology, studying psychology. I was kind of heading towards maybe a career in law. I studied Latin American history in university. But when I was was there, my, my father died and we'd had kind of a complicated relationship. Uh, So I went to see a counselor. And that was uh, an amazing uh, experience. And I found that I was like, uh, and and I really just admired this person who I I talked with and he helped me a lot through this very difficult time. And so I decided I want to do whatever he's doing. I want to do that. And so I I kind of uh, then began, you know, pursuing, pursuing that. And eventually um, after a number of years, uh, studied clinical psychology, the focus shifted to suicide prevention some years later when uh, unfortunately we experienced uh, some loss in the uh, clinical service that I directed. And that was both like personally painful and devastating, but also for the organization that I was part of. Uh, So I started to try to just learn whatever I could um, and then share that with other people, you know, kind of (laughs) make a long story short, that really has become what I think of as my vocation is to devote myself to suicide prevention. That's led me to both get involved in teaching and developing programs to help clinical services and, and other organizations do right by people who may be in distress and struggling with suicide concerns. 
but then also led into research. And uh, so my research is 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 in, is in a um, in a number of different directions that maybe we'll talk about as we as we get into the gone too soon. Okay, but 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 those were kind of the two things that that most that kind of gripped me into uh, focusing on mental health and then suicide prevention. No, no, really interesting journey. I think um, be of interest to our listeners to tell them a bit about safe side prevention because because it really has I, i'm familiar with it obviously in, in the united states but also i know in australia as well so can you maybe tell us what is what it is for the first instance and um and yeah and, and how that sort of international angle happens well it kind of i mean in a way that the the, the story sort of picks up there because as i began learning what i could and sharing that and tested some approaches to to engaging people in understandable and accessible ways there it came a point where it had the opportunity to, to think with some colleagues about, you know, how could we have more impact with what we're learning? And so through a um, through a program at the University of Rochester uh, that encouraged faculty members to think about what would be kind of best way to get their work and, and other evidence-based practices out into communities, um, I founded SafeSide Prevention. So SafeSide provides leadership consultation, educational programs, and policy and procedure recommendations for organizations that want to take a kind of a fresh approach to suicide prevention. The work extended into Australia, as you mentioned, um, partially thanks to some frameworks that we had developed getting um, just sort of adopted in a few different places there. And one of those was uh, in, in uh, Queensland, uh, in Gold Coast Health, person who's, who's now become a close colleague, uh, Dr. Kathy Turner, who initially, you know, kind of drew my interest into that area. And um, and now we have projects all across the country. Um, so I spend a lot of time there. We have a team that's based in Australia, working with several different national organizations like the Department of Veteran Affairs, Department of Defense, several different NGOs, and, and the state of New South Wales, um, which is where Sydney is for this, uh, don't know. Uh, so that's been really rich. And, and actually, a lot of the center of gravity for my work is beginning to really shift to there because I think Australia, there's a public health mindset and I think some very progressive ideas around suicide prevention that I think is really leading the way. And actually, I'm hoping that as as the U.S., as we revise our national strategy, you know, which I think will probably be informed by some of this work had gone too soon. I'm hoping that we'll also take a lot of cues from the work that's occurring uh, occurring in Australia, because I really think that there's a lot of uh, important leadership occurring there in this space. You summarize that really beautifully, because that means that's using as the last question before we move into gone too soon, because... I think the work that you're doing at, at, at SafeSide is a great exemplar of what we're hoping will happen in many respects with suicide prevention, but beyond suicide prevention in terms of integrated care, be more collaborative, all those sort of principles that we we tried, we we outline yeah. in, in going too soon. And the integration of lived experience. I mean, that's so kind of from the beginning, you know, I have a, other personal experiences that, and I'd be interested, you know, to kind of, you know, c compare notes on this. I know that that's a shared commitment that we all have. I mean, I had my own moment about that when I was teaching one time and I was saying how it's absolutely critical that we, you know, collaborate with people. With lived experience. And I realized, well, what am I doing standing up here by myself? Uh, <laughs> and, uh, 
and, and uh, then began on a, a journey that, that continues to this day of, of, of co-learning and co-reflection and trying to encourage and nudge different organizations yep. uh, towards that more direction. No, absolutely. And that's, we'll be chatting about that for one of those is one of our key themes in Gone Too Soon. So let's move on to sort of what Gone Too Soon is and um, and how it came about. So just for those who are they're listening unfamiliar. So Gone Too Soon is focus of today's podcast is around a paper I mentioned at the top of the podcast, which we published. There was a group of 40 of us from across the globe, and I co-led it with um, my great colleague and friend, Carl Worthman. And, and Carl's based in Atlanta previously in Emory, but he's actually moving to New York. But we co-led it with this group of 40 amazing people from around the world. And Tony and Benny are two of those people. And but what we were really keen to do when we, in terms of put together this effectively a roadmap and that what we're trying to think about where, how do we, well, let's first of all, recognize that people with mental illness and mental distress live less longer than people who don't have mental illness and mental distress. And in particular, we know that you're about on average, about, for people with more severe mental illness, it's about 10 year differential. So how do we understand that? And that, and that early mortality or premature mortality is driven, yes, by suicide, but also from the comorbidities associated with mental illness and mental distress. So what we tried to do with this Gone Too Soon paper was to identify the key priorities for action to prevent that premature mortality. But crucially, we wanted to ensure that we took a global focus. And also at the heart of everything, as you just touched on, Tony, was that being completely embedded in everything we did was lived and living experience, not at the end, at the beginning. And so we were all equal partners. We've got experts by lived, by lived experience, experts in academic life, experts in clinical life, experts in policy, experts in grant giving, experts in, in all aspects of the different disciplines of academia as well. And I mean, it was a, I mean, it was a, a real endeavor, which when I, I'm going to move on, ask Emily a bit about this in a second, because this is all driven forward by MQ. And, and Emily will tell you about the drivers from the MQ's perspective that sort of well, were the starting point. But I think the first email I received about this, about being asked to co-chair it, was probably, I think it was sometime probably in the summer of 2021. With When I checked my emails recently, the first email I then was sent on my behalf and Carl's behalf to invite people, I think was was winter. December 2021, and the paper just came out there in May. So it's been this long process, but I think that long process has led us to really take our time in sort of de in developing something. I'll talk a bit in a second about the process, but developing hopefully something which will make a meaningful difference to saving lives. So Emily, if I maybe can come back to you then. So as our MQ representative here. Can you tell us a bit about the driver from MQ's perspective but that led to Gone Too Soon? Definitely. And I think it's it's a process that MQ has now been honing over a number of years you now since we've been around in terms of saying, you know, there's no point us throwing money at a problem without really stepping back first and trying to work out exactly what those priorities need to be. And that includes particularly working with people with lived experience and then those academics across really different disciplines, across different countries. You know, we aren't necessarily the experts at MQ, but we have access to those amazing people who can then come together and do this. So it's both a driver in terms of us working out therefore where we put our investment, where we put our effort, but also I'm just slightly moving on to the to the outputs and the hope from this paper is it also helps for the rest of the academic community and other funders out there, for governments to think about 
you know, we've done the hard work for you. We've looked at those priorities. We've involved the right people. Here's this roadmap for you. In terms of specifically why this topic area, it was an area from our other kind of research work that we've done and that other prioritization that we saw as being really underfunded. So we've done a lot of work ourselves and then in collaborations with places like the International Alliance for Mental Health Research Funders to understand whilst this whole area of mental health research is really underfunded, where specifically are those pockets that are suffering even more? And this was one of them, that idea of early mortality and the fact we are losing people far too early. The other piece that I will just touch on there as well is it was a really concerted choice to bring together those two slightly different aspects, which I loved reading the paper that they were really brought together and show that unifying factor, uh, both around suicide and what you know that co or multimorbidity. So that mix between physical and mental health. And actually, it was fantastic to see that actually, you know what, there are commonalities. So let's stop treating them as completely separate problems. Actually, there are similar things that we can do in this roadmap that allows us to then really start moving the needle on this. So as I say, we'd kind of spotted those gaps, but we knew that, again, we as NQ aren't able to make those decisions. It's about bringing those right people together to put that roadmap together to influence our own investments, but as they have a much wider impact in terms of those other people who can then start actually being the ones who make a difference in this space and using the recommendations in the paper. I just want to ask, a lot of times people have asked me since this paper came out and I've been, you know, sharing it about, about more about MQ. I wonder just for people who might not be familiar uh, and I can point them to your explanation. I think I've been doing a decent job, but I wonder if you could just broadly do that. I think some of the people who are listening might not be familiar. Yeah, of course. So, I mean, MQ is a kind of UK headquartered, although we also have an office in the, in the US and New York but international research funder, but we're a publicly fronted, publicly facing and publicly funded organization. So we're, we're a charity. So we have to kind of raise those funds to then be able to allow us to, to give it to that area and to say prioritize exactly where we need to invest into mental health research. So we both fund research and we're kind of disease agnostic. So everything from your very common anxiety and depression through to serious mental illness uh, across the globe and across those different disciplines about finding that, that best research and science. But again, the other part and the work that we do is, is all about that collaborative work. It's about bringing the right people together to work together, sometimes literally physically forcing them in a room together, virtual or otherwise, to get them talking and collaborating. Um, and particularly then doing these kind of sector leading pieces of work that I say, we've done the hard work, we've done that prioritization piece, and then provide this resource for others to go out and use to then helpfully kind of mostly use their kind of their investment in a really effective and efficient way. Yeah, and the other thing just to add to that, um, Tony, is that the most recent sort of publicly facing thing that MQ has done in terms of the research end is fellows programs. So supporting a fellows program, which uh, again, those fellows are not not necessarily based in the UK. And indeed, the, the new fellows, which are just beginning, there's quite a few of them in, in the United States, because again, with this partnership, we are, we've got the MQ Foundation in the United States, which um, hmm. which Emily has has mentioned. Interesting. So then, just bringing it back then to this sort of paper, and then Ben, I'm going to bring you in a, in a second. And so, what we tried to do then, we got the forty people together, roughly forty people, and the process that led to the paper was that we then asked people. People are invited if they had expertise in mental health or mental illness more generally, or suicide and suicide prevention. And then we asked people to do some pre work. So before because the plan was we would meet together in a series of two workshops. But before we met in the workshops, and these were the prioritization workshops, we asked people to give, do some pre-work. What do they see as the key risk factors and mechanisms associated with this premature mortality? And then think about solutions. What would the solutions be? But in the, And that sort of primed us for a first virtual workshop because it was obviously, we're still going through our COVID restrictions. And so we had 
work, first workshop in which we then try to prioritize the sort of risk factors and mechanisms. And then in between that workshop and the second workshop, there was a sort of an executive group of us. And we then sort of try to synthesize what came out of the first workshop as well as a pre-workshop. And then in the second workshop was more focused on prioritization of the solutions. And then that led us then to what was effectively the nuts and bolts of what became the paper, because people had also given us key references, readings and and sort of key reviews and, and wrote various sections. And then what that gave rise to then was the Gone Too Soon paper, which has two key parts to it. We've got 12 risk factors and mechanisms, which we think are central. And then these 18 solutions, which we think are really important and we're really trying, obviously, to prioritize for action. And, and again, as Emily mentioned, what was really fascinating was that when we started out in the process, we we didn't know how we would deal with the fact that we had these suicide experts over here, these mental illness or mental health experts on the other side. And we didn't know how much common ground there would be or commonalities. And actually what emerged was there was huge synergy. And that's what we sort of hoped potentially was one outcome. But we were perfectly content if it had been that we end up writing two separate papers. But I think the strength is in bringing those two papers together. So maybe then if, if that's sort of my sort of overview of the, of the process. Benny, if I can bring you in at this stage and, and tell us, because obviously you were bringing a wealth of experience, but... One of the key things in the in the process and is really highlighted in one of the panels is the involvement at all stages as co-partners, as co-producers, uh, lived experience. So you maybe tell us a bit about your sort of experience of the process, and then we won't have time to go through all 18 solutions, but maybe one or two solutions that you found particularly helpful. For me, initially, when I was invited, uh, when I got the opportunity to be in the panel, I was pretty surprised to read the big names and everyone in the expert. But of course, I tried to, I tried my best to give what I have mm-hmm. at the time. And since I mostly work on the community-based interventions and all the stuff, I really love this kind of recommendation is included. The very reason why I really love this uh, is because for me, community-based interventions and peer engagement uh, would help to intervene the outside clinical settings, which which is crucial since most of the suicide cases or premature mortality are outside clinical healthcare settings, right? So these kind of interventions and recommendations on the interventions have the potential to alleviate the problem before it gets worsened. Mm-hmm. So, and that is why uh, I really love this specific part of interventions that then I also love the the recommendation on stigma reduction, since yep. there's also uh yeah there's also one of my concern and how cultural factors also create this kind of stigma and understanding of suicide. Yeah, because I think what was really interesting through all our discussions, through the workshops, through looking at the research literature, was the pervasive impact of any all forms of inequality and that inequality in the form of racism, discrimination, stigmatization, victimization. And I think when we think about the challenge of preventing premature mortality, it's, of course, part of it is, yes, having the best mental health services. But as you say, Benny, it's beyond that is having these community responses as well as really tackling these hard-hitting societal issues around inequality. And actually, maybe before I bring Tony back in, just for those who are listening, the way we organize these 18 solutions, where these 18 solutions, which we think of the key actions are basically divided into three broad areas. 
And area one or theme one is around trying to promote better integration of mental and physical health care. And then theme two was prioritizing prevention while strengthening treatment. And part of that is obviously looking at different settings where su suicide occurs or different settings where um, we could maybe provide support for mental health, which helps both mental and physical health. And that could include, of course, the workplace, schools and so on. And then the third theme is a bit of a mouthful. Um, the third theme was the optimization of intervention synergies across social ecological levels and the intervention cycle. So a bit of a mouthful, but that really is to highlight, I suppose, the complexity and recognizing again that to prevent the premature mortality, we have to tackle it at the social level, at the individual level, at the societal level, at the community level. So just so that would be helpful just to put that in context. So maybe the same question, for you, Tony, and I'm going to ask both Emily and Craig if you're sort of highlights in this as well, Craig. Tony, in terms of your experience of the process and then what you're particularly excited to see in the sort of 18 solutions. Well, I, I have to first say that, you know, I was not the most major. I appreciate being part of this and, and being asked, but it's not the most major contributor. There are many other people who deserve much more uh, credit for this amazing. Uh, it was a team endeavor, Tony. It was a team. A, a much more. <laughs> but, um, but first of all, the thing that you just mentioned is really important. The fact that it was not two papers, but is one, I think is, is, is really key. I, it's very difficult for people to hold on to the idea that we need both broad societal kind of social determinants, and we also need things at an individual level. It, and instead, I think pendulums tend to swing. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that this initiative does a good job of really trying to hold and say, no, we need across this continuum, uh, we need work. If, if I had to pick in light of that, I guess, if I had to pick, you know, like a favorite, uh, uh, like, how do you pick, you know, from your from favorite of your children or something? But um, <laughs> I, I, th I think it would be some of, and and this partly because this this does coincide with another whole stream of my of, of of our work here at Rochester, is focusing on community and um, their community and workplace recommendations, and that's because I think that's really where people live. I, I worry sometimes when there's a focus on broad social determinants and things that it gets a little bit divorced from distress and well-being both take place, which I think is in is in relationships. And so I think the bridge between, so I guess if I had to pick that, I would pick the part that's the bridge, which is that people live in networks. You know, and my, my closest colleague um, and, and mentor, Peter Wyman, uh, here at the University of Rochester, and, and our work is really focused on a network approach to suicide prevention. And I think there's some of those that are at that fulcrum between individual and like whole society um, is the part where I, I think I'm I'm most excited that can we can we build the kinds of networks of relationships and norms among people that promote that reduce distress and promote well-being. So I think those that that are around like workplaces and communities, places where people live and actually have their lives. Um, it would be where I'm probably yeah. you know, most excited. Well, actually on that, because I think what we try to do when write, writing the paper, again, thinking about this global perspective of, and actually I learned a lot through the process of Gone Too Soon. And and there was some amazing examples from low and middle income countries. You're sitting going, these have to, why aren't we applying these in high income countries? And again, that was another theme throughout, was it 
that the, the learning has to be bi-directional and that um and that too often and i think there's a line in the paper in which too often we try to graft high income solutions onto low and middle income settings without giving sufficient due consideration to cultural sensitivities as well as the other way around and actually benny i remember some of the feedback you gave on one early draft of the paper and i can't remember the the specifics now but you've given really, really helpful feedback about some of the terminology we'd used and some of the things we'd missed as just in, in when we were trying to basically synthesize all this vast amount of information. So well, ever in your gratitude for, for doing that, Benny. Um, and that's why it was so important because we do have, we've, we've on the author group, we have representation from five continents. So, uh, and it so genuinely is, is global. Emily, over to you now in terms of your reading of the paper, because you obviously weren't involved in the paper itself, but were obviously in terms of the wider MQ stuff have been really supportive and instrumental. Can you tell us a bit about, yes, yeah, so you're reading the paper. What are your highlights? And then Craig, I'm going to ask you the next question, the same question. So uh, Paul Craig's got even worse. I'm saying actually after going after everyone else, I'm like, oh, all my best bits have been taken already. There are, there are so many. Um, and I'm just going to repeat you, particularly on the community one. It's interesting that that community-based intervention has come up with, with all three of you. And it was particularly that point you were saying, Rory, of that kind of low middle income to high income setting side of piece. It's a thing we've been thinking about a lot at MQ across all of our different funding. And how do we build capacity across low middle income countries and, and settings in research? And actually, particularly that community-based intervention side, from our experience of what we've seen so far, actually, those are often much more prevalent and much more successful in kind of those low resource settings. And actually, there's a lot we can learn in various high-income countries to be able to do that a lot better. So to see that come out in the paper, I think, was was really important. And as I say, just repeating what's been said already. And then the other one I'll pick up on, which is, again, highlighting maybe what I kind of said at the beginning, again, was that breaking down silos piece, which is, you know, right mm -hmm. at the beginning. It's it's the silos across the different disciplines, but particularly that silo of the kind of physical and mental health. You know, at MQ, we talk about this kind of mind, body, brain approach. And actually, you know what? This thing is attached to your body and it is going to interact from a biological standpoint, but everything else as well. And we can't split the two apart and we can't look at them in isolation. And actually, we're going to move so much further forward if we keep trying to bring them together. So I think seeing that across the whole paper was just really, really important. And we're going to kind of keep keep banging the drum on that. Well, yes, we're a mental health research charity, but that includes the whole the whole body approach, essentially. Yeah, no, no absolutely. And, and again, that importance of integrated care, elimination of silos. I think that that emerged very early on in the discussions and, uh, and, and reviewing the literature, because not only does integrated care make sense from a clinical perspective, but also there's studies out there showing it's it's more cost effective as well. So there's yeah. a number of drivers that really hopefully will ensure that that happens more commonly. Certainly in the UK, we don't do enough integrated healthcare and and, and other countries are, are the same. So Craig, then moving over to you. Well, Craig, actually, if, if any of you been following any of the social media on the when we launched uh, Gone Too Soon, there's again another brilliant YouTube video, which is on the MQ website and... Craig is doing the it's all it's animated, but Craig is the is the person behind the voice. He's doing that video, which is great. Another great tool of really increasing the accessibility of the key messages in going too soon. So Craig, then so what's what was sort of the highlights from your point of view then? 
Well, I would say the main highlight for me would be the recommendation about tackling how media talks about suicide, mm -hmm. because I, I guess the media informs a lot of like people of like what how to feel. I know that's not usually the intention, but that kind of what happens. If the media is telling people how suicide is, the negativity around it, as opposed to looking at the full picture of why this tragedy happens then these are the reasons why these stigmas continue and then people have a hard time seeking help. So mm -hmm. I, I think for me, that's the main highlight. But they're all, all the recommendations are, are very, very good. Well, you have to say that, Craig, don't you? <laughs> you work for MQ. Um, so, no, no, I agree with that. I think the media one, because it serves two functions, really, because it it's, it's about, because we, we, we frame that it's wider than just media reporting of suicide. So that's obviously part of it, because we know from the suicide literature that inappropriate reporting is associated with, in some cases, there's evidence, obviously, of 13% increases. There's a meta-analysis meta that published a couple of years ago, and an 13% increase in suicide in the weeks following a celebrity suicide. So we need to be really careful there. But we also have a frame more broadly in terms of looking at, at using harnessing, looking at the media effects on mental health more generally, but also thinking about it not just as negativity. Of course, we have to, ta we have to tackle the, the risks associated with media reporting and social media and so on. But you have to balance that with a huge opportunity to provide for the good for, for protecting people's mental health and promoting it. So, so I think it's an important area. So I'm, I'm, pleased, I'm pleased you raised it. The one I suppose I would just sort of highlight, which hasn't really been mentioned here thus far, there's a suicide one I'll do too, if I, if I may. One is on restricting access to lethal means of suicide and decriminalization of suicide. And in, like just last year, another country, Jordan, another country, instead of decriminalize suicide, is criminalize suicidal, suicidal behavior. And that was just last year. So I can't remember, I think it's something like there's at least 22, 23, 24 countries in which it's still a criminal offense. And so I think we need to really tackle that from a global cultural perspective. And and actually, so Ben, in Indonesia, what's, what's the status of suicide because there have been changes in terms of criminalization. There's been a lot of political movement in the last year or two in terms of criminalization of suicide in Indonesia. Am I right in saying that? Uh, actually, we never have any criminalization of suicide, but then uh, the logic of suicide as an individual responsibility and flows and uh, yeah, issues of characters are there. So even though we do not have any criminalization on suicide, our men, our national insur health insurance wouldn't cover any kind of suicide attempt or self-harm behaviors. So yeah, that's what happened in Indonesia. And we are trying to push them to include uh, this kind of, yeah, any kind of wound or pain or inflicted by this uh, suicide and self-harm behavior to be covered by the national insurance. Okay, no, because I knew there was something that happened. I somebody misremembered what had happened in Indonesia. Um, and then the, the other one, just from my point of view, is when we think about the treatment of mental health more generally, and I was just thinking, if I just focus for a second, we've talked a lot about the community scenario, but in mental health services, I think the big challenge, well, one is accessibility of mental health services across the globe, obviously, isn't what it should be. But the other bit is we just don't know enough about the personalized care. Again, thinking about lots of mental health conditions, but again, the one I know most closely is people who are presenting, for example, with suicidal thoughts or behaviors or self-harm is although there's a growing evidence base for psychosocial treatments being effective and the importance of continuity of care and all these things, which is great, but we still don't know where there is evidence of efficacy. We still don't know whether, for example, psychosocial treatments work for men. 
because this, the clinical trials just haven't been conducted. Now, we think they work to some degree, but we just don't know for, for certain. And that, for me, is a, relates to another recommendation we have, is when we think about that personalized care, we need to think about service redesign and look about yes. how we go, instead of us always expecting men to go to clinical services, we need to think about going to where men are. And that comes back then to that community response as well. And that's and 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 I think that's one of the other key messages in the paper, which I thought was worth highlighting. And I can see Tony is itching to get in on that. I am. I'm chomping at the bit on that one. I'm so glad of what you just said, though, uh, Rory, because you know people often point to the fact when making arguments for broader approaches to suicide prevention, they also point to the fact that well, only X percentage of people who actually die by suicide are, and that depend. That's difference by age group and 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 by countries. Um, usually you find somewhere between 20 and 40%, depending upon the, the, the regions. And you say, well, but there's all these people. And so one solution to that is, well, let's make sure that we have our suicide prevention is taking is, is not just health. The other is, though, how can we make some of those, some of the reasons why people are not uh, turning up in, in healthcare? How can we change that? And, and I do think that, that the, the key to that is to have service co-design with people in communities, including people who don't uh, access services. I've, I've, I get the opportunity to see many different health health systems, uh, you know, in, in, in a couple of different countries, three or four. Uh, and often you see a, uh, when, when there's a, a, a look at how are we doing things, it tends to take place in a pretty small circle. And even those who are involved, even when, when people with lived experience are involved, it's often people who have been service users. And as you said, often women only, who we do need as part of that. But rarely do you find people in those who have never used services and who wouldn't want to set foot in a in a in a health service. And so we we need to 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 really rethink how services are offered, the circumstances of those. And another one of our projects is really focused on this and think about alternatives for addressing distress outside of health services. There's a certain number of people who just are not going to go through the door of uh, of a of, of a system that is more medically focused, and partially because some of those are also tend towards coercion and involuntary treatment for people, yeah. and they're just not going to go anywhere near it. And so we really do need community led options for crises and distress as well. So I think what you're talking about is huge, and, and I'm, I'm really glad that you brought it up. And I think that the yeah, that this idea about personalized, it's personalized for the individual, but it's also probably needs to be more generally friendly and humane, yeah. <laughs> uh, meaning more person-centered, not just personalized medicine. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's, we'll just, we're, we're coming close to the end of our time here today, but what we try to do there is give you some sense of a, a flavor of, of what's in gone too soon. Uh, and, and the paper is available free to download at, at the Lancet Psychiatry website. You, I think you have to register with Lancet Psychiatry and then the paper is free. For, so please, please obviously go and read the, go and read the paper. Before, I have just one last question, just to sort of, which is not, sort of as a lighter way to finish the podcast today was I'm going to come to. But just before I do, any of our guests here, anything you would like to say about the paper, which you haven't had a chance to say, or sort of closing reflection? The reflection for me is uh, how important it is to involve people with the experience here. And I really appreciate that the team also involves us as co-authors even. So uh, it is, yeah, it is very important for us to be involved as we are the one who navigate the situations and we have the, our own insights 
to complement to complement uh, the theoretical insights that we usually have on our research evidences. Absolutely, and and actually the last part, the last section of the paper, well, I think a really cool figure, which is basically how we implement implementation science, but we getting this stuff into practice, and at the heart of it is lived experience every certain every second of the way. Emily, any last reflections from an MQ perspective, and then we'll do these quick questions i think it was exactly just to pick up on what you're just saying there at the end rory now it's about well what do we do with this and <laughs> where does it go from here and one thing is that you've touched on we've already funded our latest round of fellows in this area so do have a look on our website in terms of looking at some of those really interesting projects that are just getting launched now but also it is about that okay well what else could we fund in the future but also what are these other funders doing what are the policymakers need to do so our work isn't finished as MQ. Now we've got to do a lot of influencing to take this out there. This is obviously part of it to try and make sure that those recommendations are now followed through. So I think that's that's the key thing. And again, with the lived experience at the heart of that, I think it makes it much more likely it's going to be successful. No, fantastic. Well said. Okay, so very quick fire, just we finish with something slightly lighter. Um, so Tony, I'm going to start with you on this one is we'll ask everybody the same question. It's a bit of reflection on what you've learned in your life and what advice would you give your 16 year old self? I think actually, you know, I, I, I'm going to go back to my father since I sort of started the podcast there and, and said that, you know, we had a, a, a complicated relationship because I want to say one thing, really helpful thing that he passed on to me by way of advice when I was 16. Um, and uh, which was that there's, there's always room for, there's always, there's room for, for somebody good in every field. And, and the reason why that was important advice and why is that I see many uh, young people looking around and feeling like all the, there's so many people who are so amazing. You see every day doing incredible feats all over the place. And is there really room for them to make a difference? And there is, there is. If you want to you know, apply yourself and bring your gifts whether it's to suicide prevention or any other field, there's room. And um, I was glad that my my dad taught me that and not to be intimidated when you think, oh, all the uh, so many impressive people out there and all the good jobs are already taken or, but no, there's room for you. And, and, and I, and I hope that, you know, young people will hear that, hear that message. That's a great piece of advice. There's space for everyone and everyone's valued. Um, Benny, and then we'll finish with Emily. Benny. I think I will say to believe in yourself, <laughs> to believe in yourself, if no matter how much uh, self, those self-doubting voices tell you, and no matter how uh, others people might perceive you, as long as you are doing good and contributing something and find the meaning in what you do, just believe in yourself. You will get there. Again, really clear, succinct advice uh, like that. And Emily, last not least. Oh, hard acts to follow. Um, I think from my perspective, probably linked to both of those as well, is thinking about the fact that actually all of those experiences you've had as a young person really do add up and then help you to be where you are. You know, who you would have known that I'd end up working at MQ and being able to channel what was obviously a very difficult time when being young into something so positive. So I think it's, you know, that this too shall pass, but actually you can harness a lot of that that experience you've had and channel it into something really positive. And I've been really lucky to do so. So well, one incredibly positive and upbeat way to end the podcast. So just remains in part on behalf of Craig and I, just to thank you all for taking the time, first of all, take part in the podcast, but probably, perhaps more importantly, spending the time with us over the last 18 months working on Gone Too Soon. And yet, so the message, as Emily said, is let's, we need to get the message out there. Let's try and implement those 18 solutions and hopefully do something to tackle the absolute scourge 
of premature mortality associated with mental illness and mental distress. So thank yeah, you, Rory and Emily and Craig, thanks for the work that you're doing on behalf of this, uh, you know, this project, this paper, and all of us. So we really appreciate it. Uh, and and I, I hope I I think by providing actionable solutions, it's really what the field needs. Brilliant. Thanks and goodbye. MQ Open Mind is presented by MQ Mental Health Research, the only organization that exclusively invests into scientific research around mental health. Our vision is to create a world where mental illnesses are understood, effectively treated, and one day prevented. Please leave us a review and let us know what you think about the podcast. Each review helps us reach a wider audience. Visit mqmentalhealth.org to learn more about MQ and mental health research.